couple of announcements to start off with on the back of your bulletin, <clears throat> things I want to draw attention to. Well, first of all, how many of you enjoyed the, just a different style of music? How many of you have never been to a, uh, an amphitheater service in the summer? Never been. Let me see. Okay, wow, a few of you. All right. This is a sampling of what's coming in June when we move out there, isn't it? Mark does a fantastic job of getting bands from around the state to come, and the music varies and changes, and it's, boy, you just tasted it. So you'll be hearing more about that. On the back of your bulletin is an update about Vacation Bible School. I want to bring that to your attention. Now, before you tune out, if you're over the age of, say, 40, you're probably going, eh. No, no, listen. Listen. Vacation Bible School is important. You know why? It's one of our events. I didn't realize this when I came here until I went to my first one and my second one. <laughs> I think last year we had, what, 330-something kids register. There were 75 unchurched families represented in that group of kids. This is one of our events where we have an opportunity to reach out to the community, those that don't know Christ. So my re uh, request for you is please stop and pray. Pray for this event. It's a big event. This year, we're going to try to see if we can connect with some of those families and get to know them a little bit. But one of the things you'll find is information on women's ministry, a class I'm going to teach, uh, Bill Spears, Sunday School. This thing is packed full. All this information is on the website, so get used to going to the website and looking it up. It's all there. All right. Thank you for praying for my surgery. As you can see, I'm here. Uh, one of my friends said... One of my friends said, your surgery is on tax day? Dude, don't pay your taxes. <laughs> what do you mean don't pay my taxes? He said, put it in an envelope, give it to the nurse in the operating room, tell her if you die on the table, just put it in the trash can. <laughs> I had to pay my taxes. <laughs> and I'm glad to be here. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers. They mean a lot to me. All right, we are in a series in Isaiah. We called it The Lord Speaks because in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, it says the Lord has spoken. And we're going to see that several times today. All the way through Isaiah, the Lord speaks. And remember, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing to happen in a very dark world where they never heard from the gods, that our God would speak. And uh, sometimes he says things we love to hear, and sometimes he says things we don't love to hear. Today, we're going to focus on a major theme in Isaiah regarding the nations, it's major, it occupies Isaiah 13 through 27, so it occupies 14 chapters in Isaiah. It's, uh, it's just focused only on the nations. In fact, to set the stage, I'm going to just sample these. You don't have to follow along, you can listen. I'm just going to skim through these chapters and listen to it. How many of you find Isaiah difficult and a challenge to understand when you read it? Yeah, most of you, okay. All right, so I'm just going to start in chapter 13. Just listen to these words. A prophecy concerning Babylon. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones, and I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. I wonder who the nations are fighting against. Hmm. Chapter 14. Nope, we're going over. Let's go. Chapter 15. This is a prophecy against Moab. Ar in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. 
Kerr in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Uh, every head is shaved, every beard cut off. In the streets, they're wearing sackcloth. On the roofs and in the public squares, they're wailing, prostrate with weeping. Um, gone over to uh, 17. This is a prophecy against Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. What? That's a big, that's a major city. It's going to become a heap of ruins. The cities of Eror will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim, a royal power from Damascus. In chapter 18, you have a prophecy against Cush. Um, Woe to the land of whirring wings among the rivers of Cush, which send envoys by the sea and papyrus boats over the water. Go, swift messengers, to a tall people, smooth skinned, to a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech, whose land is divided by rivers. All you people who live in the world on the live in the world and on the earth, what a banner is raised in the mountains. Nineteen is a prophecy against Egypt. See the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt they tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. Um, let's see, pro- uh, 20. This is a prophecy against Egypt and Cush. The Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old alike, um, to Egypt's shame. And it goes on and on. What do we do with all that? Does that make sense to any of you? It's kind of tough, isn't it? Covers 14 chapters, plus a whole lot of other language outside of those 14 chapters. Those 14 chapters are devoted to the nations and God's judgment. What are we to make of all that? Well, let's start with this idea. The nations are not incidental to the gospel. They are central. They're not on the side. It's not just a good idea that God thought up after the fact. The nations are central to this good news. And I've brought up in the past that uh, creation care should be a core part of our theology. Several of you have come back to me with, oh, that's a new idea. This earth is a gift from the one true God. We are compelled to take care of it. We should not be ashamed to say we believe in environmentalism. That should be a core part of what we believe. We're the only religion that teaches it. The world should look at us and say, those are people that care about this creation because they believe it was given to them by God. Well, guess what? The nations are just like that. This is central to our theology. It's a core part of it. Why is that? We'll get to that in a minute. Most of you know Genesis 12, the famous words to Abram. It says five times between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, I think. I will make you a blessing to all the nations. That's in Genesis 12. But if you back up two chapters, 10 and 11, all the nations are created by God. In fact, Acts 17, at Mars Hill, Paul argues that God created all the nations so that we would come to know him. He created all the nations so that we would come to know him. 
How on earth is that possible? Why are the nations so critical? All right. <clears throat> to answer that question, we have to dabble just a little bit in anthropology, okay? Cultural anthropology. And look at the way people groups interact and relate with one another. Let me give you a picture if I can. It's a little bit old, but it'll still work, I think, a metaphor. Okay, here's God. He surrounded himself by a kaleidoscope of nations. Okay? One human race. As a theologian, we hold to one human race. In sociology, we talk about races, but in theology, we talk about race and ethnicity. <clears throat> so one human race. When I travel to India, Nepal, or Africa, one of my favorite exercises is to get all my students up in front of the classroom and to line them up from the darkest to the lightest. Where do you think I fit? <laughs> I'm always the tail. <laughs> always. But what I want to illustrate is that different ethnicities, different national cultural backgrounds, but we're all one human race. And you can see the color shift. And so in, in Nepal... Uh, like here, to be the darkest is not necessarily a positive thing until I do that. And then he or she and I have something in common. We're the two ends. The book ends. One human race. That's how the world was created. But then God introduced nationality, ethnic, ethnic identity. Why? So that we would come to know him. How does a different person a person from a different country, help us know the Lord better. All right, think about this with me. I sit down with Matt. We have coffee, kind of the same color. He's a little bit younger than I am, maybe a lot younger than I am. But I mean, we come from the same country. We've done this. We have coffee, and I say, tell me your story. He tells me a story, and my view of God begins to broaden. I begin to learn things about the Lord that I didn't know. Because... If my only awareness of God was me, it's hopelessly inaccurate. It's hopelessly inaccurate. There's no way I could figure out who God is by myself. If I was the only Christian on the earth, I would struggle to know God. So I sit with Matt, and I say, oh, wow. So God did that in your life. That's pretty awesome. And I hear about an experience he had that was different than mine, and my view of God broadens. Okay, so then I sit with Holly and uh, we've talked and I say, Holly, tell me your story. And she tells me her story. Now I've crossed a gender line, gender threshold. And well, let's just say women are different. <laughs> let's just say that men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. Wrong title. Men are from the earth. Women are from a solar system we've not even discovered yet. <laughs> just kidding. So I sit with Holly, and she tells me her story about the Lord, and she used different language. She uses different language, different words to describe how God interacts with her as a woman, and my view of God gets even bigger. So then I fly all the way around the world to Nepal, across to every boundary there is, socioeconomic, religious, cultural, you name it. Every boundary that you can think of, I've crossed. And I listen to my Nepalese students, tell me your stories about God, and it's just like blowing the world apart. My view of God becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. You following my train of thought here? We were designed to learn from each other more than to learn from God. That's how we're created. 
It's a wonderful thing that God is immutable. He's unchanging. So if he's unchanging, why? He doesn't need to change because he's God. If he's unchanging, then that means he necessarily had to create us to change. Because if we didn't need to change, we'd be God. Ooh, that's a little deep, huh? We are constantly changing and will be for all of eternity. It's not like you die and you wake up and now you, you, know, you download everything there is to know. Then you'd be God. Not at all. You were designed to change and grow. And he created us to have that effect within community. So diversity is a word that is freighted with a lot of political image today. So I'm careful with it. But I do like the idea of a theology of difference. That we grow best when we are with people different than us. By the way, you're all different than I am. You are. Thank the Lord for that. I heard that. <clears throat> the Lord will seek vengeance for that. <laughs> it's a gift from the Lord that we're all different. That's how we learn. So, all the different nations, because their language is different, their cultural practices are different, they all experience and conceive of God with slightly different but overlapping nuances. And we learn well when we listen. In fact, I would go so far as to say God cannot be fully known until every nationality, every ethnic group, and both genders have heard, have spoken. It's not possible. It's just not possible. We have a lot of work ahead of us. You see why the nations are so critical now to the good news? And I'm not talking about Allah in one country, Buddha in another. No, I'm talking about Yahweh, the one true living God. But the different ethnic groups, they conceive of him differently because of their experiences. And so we listen to one another. That's why the nations are central. They're not incidental to this good news. From the very beginning, God created us that way. And just in case you wonder, if you get go all the way to the end of the book, to Revelation, guess what you find? Several times it says every tribe, every people, every language, every nation is present in the eternal state. This is always God's plan. Always. So what do we do with all this really tough language, this cryptic language? Well, remember from last week that when the Lord looked at Israel, he looked for justice, but he found bloodshed. Isaiah 5, 7. He looked for righteousness, but he saw cries of distress. They were not doing what he wanted them to do. They were not living out their faith. They were not trusting in the Lord. Well, when he looked around him at the nations, he found the same thing. Israel was not alone. So this represents a real dilemma. Every nation he created has turned against him. Well, you know that. Nothing has changed today. <clears throat> Why? Why? How did that happen? I'm going to give you one sample, one little thing out of Isaiah 10. This is an example of what happens, okay? This is the judgment on Assyria. Now remember, this first part, the first 39 chapters, are written in the 8th century. The southern kingdom under Ahaz in uh, Jerusalem is looking at the northern kingdom that's above them, 10 tribes, 
And the Assyrians are coming down and they're annihilating them. They're brutal. They're ruthless in what they're attempting to do. So he has a choice. Am I going to make peace with the Assyrians so they won't rout us? Or am I going to turn to this one true God and trust him? Well, he chose the wrong course. But listen to the judgment in the middle of that. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. This is God speaking. Woe to the Assyrian, the God of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. We just got one of those rare glimpses where we got to step into the throne room and look at the Assyrians from God's perspective. And what do we find? A key principle. God uses the nations any way he chooses. He created us. It's his choice. It's his choice. But there's always the earthly side of the same story. Listen to the very next verse. But this is not what he intends. This king of Assyria. This is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy. His purpose is to put an end to all the nations. Absolute power. His purpose is to rout and control and dominate the world. We've seen that before in the history of the world. We have, haven't we? So, coin. One side is heaven, the other side is earth. We're looking at it from God's perspective, and he says, I'm using them as an instrument to punish Israel to draw them back to me. Earthly side, we're arrogant. Look how powerful we are. We can destroy we can annihilate. We can have world domination. By the way, that's my motto as a Christian. World domination. Go and make disciples all the nations. You could tell I didn't sell you on that. Here's the amazing thing about all these things that I just read to you. These prophecies were meant to be heard by Israel. We don't have any evidence that these prophecies were told to the other nations. It's not like Isaiah went to the Assyrians and said, let me tell you what the one true God said. That's not what happened. He told the Israelites his prophecy about Assyria, about Babylon, about on and on and on, Cush, you name it. The key principle is that the Lord is the one who raises the nations and brings them down. It's his choice to use them however he sees fit. That message is all the way through Isaiah. We struggle to understand the language of God's wrath that's displayed against the nations, don't we? Don't we have trouble in the conquest of Canaan when God said, kill this village, wipe them out? You know, annihilate this people group over here, do this, do that. I mean, we have struggles with that because by the time we get to the New Testament, we have a completely different picture of a redemptive God. So when we step back, why in the world is that happening? How do we connect those dots? Well, there's a lot of ways that we're going to connect some of those dots. Uh, um, not trying to necessarily put a commercial in, but when we teach on how to study the Bible in a month on Wednesday nights, we're going to address these very problems. 
How do we connect these dots? So I'm just going to give you one way to connect the dots right now. Um, you have to understand, throughout Isaiah, the Lord uses all these different governments, these nations, to express both his wrath and his faithfulness to Israel. He uses them for both purposes in light of their rebellion. The one thing that they had in common was they were all rebellious. They were. So what is the criteria by which the Lord uses to display this kind of wrath against the nations? What prompts him to do that and prompts him not to do that? I obviously don't have all those answers. I just have a couple of thoughts from Isaiah. One is, there's two questions. Did they follow the nations? Did they follow him as the one true living God, or did they follow idols? That seems to be one of the criteria. Did they follow him, or did they follow idols? Did they humble themselves before him, or did they make themselves more arrogant? Well, you know what happened here? They made themselves more arrogant. That's what uh, the king of Assyria did. Look how good. Look how powerful we are. Got it all under control. No nation can stop us. That's how powerful we are. Okay, so let's address, first of all, the question of what is idolatry. The Bible gives us three ways of categorizing idolatry, and Isaiah camps out on one of those. One is the objects within creation. <clears throat> we can worship the sun or the trees or the rocks. We can pick an object and worship it. That's one way to uh, create idols. Another one is the demons. We're not going to talk about that because Isaiah talks very little about it. But the third one, the products of human hands. We make things. We make our own idols. Within Isaiah, idolatry is defined uh, as idolatry is defined as worshiping something that has a divine source of power that is no more powerful than the one who created it. I make, I take silver and I fashion an idol and then I worship it, but it has no more power than I have. Sounds kind of absurd at first, doesn't it? Hold on. You might find yourself in this place. Habakkuk 2.18 defines it well. Of what value is an idol that someone has carved? or an image that teaches lies. For those who make them trust in their own creations, they make idols that cannot speak. Now listen to Isaiah's description. He, has, he expands this idea. This is in chapter 44, verse 9. <clears throat> All who make idols are nothing. I love that. All who make idols are nothing. He didn't say the idols are nothing. He says all who make the idols. That's me. <laughs> All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? Kind of sounds absurd when you put it that way. Who on earth does this? People like that will be put to shame. Skilled workers are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith uses an example. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. How about the carpenter? He measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it with the chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory. Fallen. That it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and rain made it grow. It is used for fuel for burning. Some of it he lacks. He takes and warms himself. 
He kindles a fire and bakes bread, now get the distinction, with this same block of wood, he heats himself with fire, and then what does he do with the other half? He fashions a God and worships it. He fashions a God and worships it. Idolatry. Idolatry. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were lured by the grandeur of the nations around them. They were nothing. They were the smallest nation. They had no army. They understood nothing about domestic policy, foreign policy, supply and demand, how to take care of themselves. They knew nothing. They didn't know anything about politics. They didn't know anything about the royal court. They were slaves. They were slaves. So God brings them out, and the first thing he has to do is teach them to trust in him. So the very first place it starts is with creation, Genesis 1. Let me tell you the truth about how all this came to be. This is how precious you are to me. I made this for you. Enjoy it. So he knew they would be lured, tempted by the grandeur and the majesty of all the nations that they were to dispossess. No wonder they were terrified. Every one of these nations had their own armies. They had their own palaces. They had their own structure. All of that. It was necessary for them to see for themselves the true nature of idolatry and how to avoid it. They had to see it. They had to learn what faith was about. Sadly, they didn't learn their lesson. Their very own kings led them astray. In fact, I'm going to go back and read you a short passage out of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, this is a story of Jeroboam. He led the northern kingdom of Israel astray and caused the nation to sin. In fact, this is right after Solomon. Every king after that was compared to Jeroboam because he sinned so badly. So what did he do and how did he lead the nation astray? He did it in a very subtle way, a very subtle form of idolatry. So I'm in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26. Jeroboam thought to himself, Solomon has just died, so they split the kingdom. The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. That's the southern kingdom. If these people go to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, because he's in the northern kingdom, they will again give, again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's politically motivated. If I don't do something, these ten tribes are going to abandon me and go back to the southern kingdom. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. He's confusing them. He's saying, these two gods represent Yahweh. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan, northern and southern parts of his kingdom. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other one. His intention was to prevent his population from returning to political allegiance to Jerusalem, to reunite the kingdom. He was very purposeful in leading them astray. So he provided calves at opposite ends of the kingdom. They represented the God who had brought them out of Egypt. That's what he told them. What he did as a king was he reconstructed the entire religious scheme 
of the northern kingdom so that he controlled their perspective of this one true God. See it? He led them astray. He did that deliberately. Now, lest you be critical, lest you be critical, do we do the same thing? If idolatry is defined by creating an image that leads one to trust in an image rather than the true God, are we guilty? Are we guilty of that? Where do you place your hope? Do you place it in the one true God or the fact that we have the strongest military in the world? 11 nuclear aircraft carriers, 10 of them are at sea at any one given time. Every ocean has a nuclear-powered aircraft battle group in it. Is that where your hope is? That's what the Romans were taught. Pax Romana, we have peace because we're the mightiest army on the earth. Is your hope then in our military or is it in the one true living God? What about financial success? Have you gotten to the point where you finally go, oh, can I retire? I made it. Is that it? Or is it the one true living God? Or do you look at your resources and say, God has obviously blessed me so that I can bless people less fortunate? That actually is the, the biblical model. I said last week, as long as there's one poor person on the earth, we are not done. Today I'm going to say because of the nations, as long as there's a nation that doesn't know Christ, we are not done. Where do you place your faith? How about career advancement? You've, you've done it. You've risen to the top. No place to go. Yeah. Is that it? What about in your families? Your children do well. My kids serve the Lord. I did it right. I am just astounded throughout all my 38 years as a Christian the number of times I have seen a family do it right and the kids turn out wrong or right and the families that do it wrong and the kids turn out right. How is it some of the greatest, most humble Christians come from the most abusive situations? Over in my family, one goes this way, three go this way. How'd that happen? Where's your faith? When I left Dallas Seminary, I decided to call my library so I took my shelf on parenting, which is about three feet. I looked at all the books. I pulled one off the shelf, and the rest went in the trash can. I was smart enough to know that they didn't know what they were talking about. There was no formula. I had already discovered one this way, three this way. But Lord, I did it right. We could go on, those in high school. Maybe you're part of a sports team. Maybe you're part of a club. Have you arrived because of that? Or is your faith in the one true living God? So don't be too critical. So God's punishing of the nations was directly to due to their idolatry, their worshiping someone other than him, and their rebellion as the one true God. This is captured by Paul in Romans 1. He says... We have the knowledge of God, and we choose to ignore it. We got the question backwards in Christianity. We ask the question, what if they don't hear? 
What if we don't send a missionary? What if we don't share the gospel? It's the wrong question. And what the real question is, why are you rebelling and rejecting the God, rejecting God? Because Paul makes it clear in Romans 1, every human is without excuse. Every single one. This isn't a statistical, a game of statistical probability. We tend to think that people have a better chance of coming to Christ in our country than they do in a third world country. Not true. This isn't a game of statistical probability. There's no example in scripture where somebody sought after God and God ignored them. It's not the way it works. It doesn't matter where you are in which country. You have chosen to rebel and move into idolatry. That's your choice. God is gracious to give it to you. If you choose to follow him, he says, I will be found by you. That's the message of Romans 1. Psalm 2 gives us a bird's eye view of how God views these nations. Everything we've been talking about. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Why? That's the basic question the psalm asks. The kings of the earth, they rise up together. The rulers band together against the Lord, there it is, and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Let's become more powerful than they are so we can win. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Picture the Lord. He's just laughing. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. That's quoted in Hebrews to apply to who? Jesus. If in doubt, Jesus is a good answer. This is talking about Jesus right here. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Why would Jesus want the nations as his inheritance with everything we've just talked about? Why? First of all, it's his creation. It's his creation. And because not everyone rebels. There are people that turn to the Lord. That's the story of Revelation. Every tribe, every nation, every people group, every language is represented. That's why in Genesis 12, here we are, God, kaleidoscope of nations, he chooses one, the weakest, the smallest, the least trained, the least likely to succeed, and he says, I want you to go reach the rest. That's our story. That's why we are a kingdom of priests, priests on behalf of the rest of the world. We know the one true living God. That is our job. That is our story, to be a blessing to the nations. There's a straight line between Genesis 10 and 11, the nations who need redemption, and Revelation 7, the nations who have received redemption. There's a straight line. The biblical story is the accomplishment of this incredible feat. So God uses nations as he pleases. He raises them to bring about a sense of punishment to cause us to turn to him. 
rebellious nations who walk away, he goes after them. But he also uses it, the very same nations, to punish them for their rebellion. The storyline is found. I'm just going to read you a couple more passages and we're done. That's what the storyline of Isaiah is when it comes to the nations. Listen to these words, Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. All the nations will stream to it. Isaiah 40, we'll just jump over to chapter 40. We hear something very similar. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway of our God. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. We read that passage at Christmas, don't we? That's the Christmas passage. Isaiah 60. We're just jumping ahead a little bit more. Last one. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and the thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Isn't that the story of Christmas? The people living in a great darkness have seen a light. That's why we celebrated Christmas. Aren't we glad? Aren't we grateful that our God did not forget us? I am. Listen to our mission statement. Going passionately. Come on up, Harry. Come on up. Going passionately out of our growing intimacy with God. Is that true? As a church, are we growing in our intimacy with God? A caring community for the county and what? The world. Say it together. The world. Say it again. The world. Sharing Christ in word and deed. You know about our benevolence fund. We talked to you about that. But you know what? We also have a missions fund. Let's don't forget that. We supported a bunch of missionaries. When you leave, go look on the wall out there. In fact, we have a missions committee meeting right after church today. So we care about the nations that live right here, that are needy and need to know Christ and need their needs met, have their needs met. We also care about the nations around the world. How many of you have been on a missions trip? Let me see. Oh, praise God. Those of you that haven't gone, come with me. Come see Nepal, Mozambique, India. Go to Haiti with our team and see what you see. The nations are absolutely critical to, the, to God fulfilling his mission in the world. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for remembering us, not forgetting us, even turn around using us. To you we give the glory and the honor. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and receive the offering. Let me just